My good fellow, welcome to Tell a Friend. So in 2019, you wrote your book, Hostile Environment, subtitled How Immigrants Became Scapegoats. And I was wondering if you could talk to me a bit about your motivation for writing the book. Yeah, um, it's a good question. Um, and I think there's quite a few different motivations. Um, in a way, it was related to Brexit, not because of the outcome of the vote, but um, one of the things that I noticed quite a lot um, around the Brexit vote was quite a few politicians, and I mentioned this right in the introduction, uh, saying, oh, this is going to turn Britain into a place it has never been before. There's a risk that this country will become really hostile, really inward looking. And whilst there's a truth to that in that you don't want to erase or ignore the really distinct forms of kind of discrimination and racism um, that were occurring around the vote, the, you know, the spike in hate crimes and the potentials about what that would mean for people in the long, longer term, it's a really peculiar thing to say that it would turn Britain into a place it had never been before, because to say that really means ignoring decades and decades of anti-immigration politics, legislation that was incredibly racist, legislation that was incredibly punitive, and very, it made the lives of a lot of people who moved to the UK incredibly difficult. And so that was one of the reasons that the, the the, the, the sparks, I suppose, for writing about it. But the other was really just, I spent quite a lot of time observing the political debate around migration and feeling really frustrated about it. And politicians often also say, you know, we need to have an honest conversation around immigration. But when they're talking about honesty, they don't really mean delving into actually the ways that anti-immigration sentiment manifests, the ways people feel about it, the way politicians and the media talk about it. They sort of mean, you know, giving people a free pass to express their prejudice however they want without fear of kind of being um, questioned about it. And so I felt that was really frustrating. And I wanted to sort of unearth those, th those histories and unearth like how the debate manifests, I suppose, and try to unpick it in a way that is not for me to judge as hopefully accessible. Um, and I think like finally, it was really about understanding the history, understanding the history of legislation, understanding the history of the debate. And a lot of the book is, um, as well as looking at, you know, the way conservative governments and the far right have um, dealt with this this issue, as they would call it, around immigration. It was also about looking at how the left, broadly, but more specifically the Labour Party as well, and the trade union movement, have reproduced a lot of anti-immigration politics. And I wanted to really interrogate that. I wanted to understand that better myself. Um, and I wanted to sort of explain that in a, in a way that questioned the, the underlying logics of the debate. And it sort of felt like there's quite a lot of people who in the public domain will argue against immigration to varying degrees or ex at least accept the arguments, parts of the arguments against immigration. And I hadn't come across loads of work that was trying to do the opposite. And from your research, did you find that this anti-immigrant sentiment and the fierce debates around immigration, did you find that this was a process that was top down or did you feel that there was actually a significant proportion of the British population that truly believed this? I think it's really difficult to measure and the thing that I'm often more interested in I suppose is what is like called sometimes elite discourse I would call like this sort of um, political discourse the media discourses the similarities and overlaps between the two of those top down I think that's really that could be a really reductive way of looking at it and a very simplistic way of looking at it but um, and also a way that sort of assumes that people just unthinkingly listen to what they're told and then sort of absorb it and repeat it which I think is is more complicated than that but what is I found sort of frustrating um 
in a lot of the public debate about it is it's almost assumed that people's views are, uh, around immigration when they have an issue with immigration are an inevitability when there is immigration of um, so, so too much immigration of a certain kind is how it's often talked about. Um, and I think what is missing in that picture is actually how political discourse has problematized immigrate, immigration and immigrants and how that is rooted in much broader histories in Britain of um, empire and colonialism. And that, that for me is actually a missing part of the debate. And so I think it's, we have to be careful to not say it's entirely top down, if you like, but to erase that completely is a really, really mis, a, a misreading of what's happening and quite unhelpful, I think, to understand why it is you have this kind of anti-immigration sentiment so, like, so expressed across, across society and really it seems like driving parts of our political discourse in a big way. And looking back at the 2016 EU referendum, do you believe that Britain is still, like is often mentioned, suffering from colonial nostalgia? Um, I think it's a very good question. And I think there's also almost a, a, um, there's a really good piece that I can, I, I, and I, um, I can't remember where it was published. There's a really good piece on this. Like maybe you could like put in the notes for this um, that talks about, um, empire as being both in something that people are nostalgic for at the same time as there's a sort of amnesia around it and so Paul Gilroy has written a lot about this in particular in relation to thinking about um how Winston Churchill has talked about for instance and so what I think is happening is is there is a sort of it, it's an implicit longing for a time when Britain was sort of seem to be like the, the ruler of the world seem to be the great the seem to be great um although obviously we can question that what that greatness even was then and how problematic it is to say that it that sort of implicitly underlies parts of the debate but at the same time it means that there's there's a necessary erasure of what the realities of that very empire was in terms of the material exploitation um and the the endemic violent racism um, and I think that one of the things that I think is very is interesting to think about is even how we think about Britain as a so-called developed nation and I you know my PhD was about this disc, this development discourse and so I have a real problem with even calling Britain a developed nation uh, but you know even if, if you if you do for a moment it is reliant on an on an erasure of the way that Britain accumulated a lot of its wealth. So it's often sort of presented, or not not explicitly so, but it's sort of assumed, like in the underlying the debate, is if Britain became developed just through uh, through innate superiority and genius. Whereas actually, if we can look at those histories, what we do see is the extraction of resources from all around the world. We look at the deindustrialization of India that, in part, helped power the industrial revolution. And so I think. It's quite a long way of saying answering your question to say that I think nostalgia certainly plays a role there, but the way that it the way that it functions is um can be quite complicated and is not always so explicit as people saying, "Oh, I want to return to the days of empire." I think it's it's more it can be more complicated than that. And in your book, you talk about a lot about language and the way that language has been politicized. Famously, in 1968, I think many people remember or at least have heard of the Enoch Powell River of Blood speech. But more recently, we hear words such as swarming, floods, and obviously mass uh, migration. Could you talk to me about the significance of language and how we've allowed it to be so frequently used? 
Yeah, I think it's it's um, it's really important the way that we talk about people. And one of the things that um, is in the Win the Wendy Williams um, review, the less the lessons learned, the review into the Windbrush scandal. One of the things that she says, and I think that's a really a, a document that's worth everyone reading for trying to understand not only what happened in relation to that scandal, but also some broader problems about the way that immigration is talked about. One of the things she says is. Um, one lesson that must be learned is that humanity should always be at the center of policy around immigration because it, it and I would say that it it's almost entirely absent in a lot of the discourse around immigration. And so the reason for me, a lot of this language matters, and I've been asked about this quite a few times, you know, people claiming, actually, it's not that bad to talk about it, is mass migration. It's merely an accurate description of what is happening, what happened, for instance, during the new labor years. And I would really there's a much broader conversation and deeper things I'd want to probe about that and about how that was tied up with new labor. But actually, fundamentally, what is the problem with that is that it is incredibly dehumanizing. It really turns, people are turned into numbers. It's presented, migration is often presented as a threat through this language. Um, and often there is also um, a really racialized nature to a lot of this debate. So tied up with this dehumanization is like, who is seen to matter, who is not, who is seen to be a threat and who is not. And that for me is why it's so important to be interrogating the language that has become so wide, widely used in um, our public debate. And you find this term mass migration, for instance, used just all the time. And it, is, it carries with it a negativity. It's been injected with a negativity that I think is is there constantly whenever it's being used. And that is a, a major problem for me in terms of reaching this idea of humanity and centering humanity, as Wendy Williams talked about, talks about, is the language that we use is really, really important when we're talking about describing people moving around the world, people moving to the UK. That that humanity for me is is lost when we use that kind of that kind of language. On the subject of the Windrush scandal. We obviously saw mass national outrage and rightfully so. But one thing that kind of surprised me was the way that it became a national story and uh, the way people really galvanized around the cause because immigration scandals like that had happened prior. And my question to you is, do you believe there was an element of selective outrage when the Windrush scandal happened? Oh, it's a good question. I'd probably ask what you think on that, because I think that, um, I don't know, I think it's interesting that on the one hand, I think there's like a limit to where people, what people's anger was, in that we know it's, it's right that people were angry that this whole group of people were being impacted in all these horrific ways. And it's worth noting that a lot of people, I mean, some people were deported and, and before they were, um, before the scandal, they died before the, the, like before this was national news. Others are still waiting on their compensation from the Home Office for the, all the ways that they were wronged, all the ways their lives were damaged. And so... I think it's it's, necess it's necessary and right to center that and recognize that. Um, but the hostile environment is still in place, right? A lot of those policies are still in operation. And so I think there's almost a limit to where the anger is or specifically what the anger is about. Like it's right that people were angry and outraged that people who were not, were not supposed to be the people who were caught up in the hostile environment were impacted. But actually it's wrong that anyone is impacted by the hostile environment. It's wrong that anyone is subjected to it. If you really think about the fact that it means, um, you know, people are d denied access to basic services. We're living right now in the middle of a global pandemic. The hostile environment has made people scared to access healthcare. 
like the, the, the how deep this goes is 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 really really worrying and so there's some there's another hurdle that i think needed to kind of be jumped or engaged with during that that when the the windrush scandal was on the front pages of our newspapers um and so i think it's worth talking about that it's worth thinking about that and thinking about not only how some of those people still need justice some of the people impacted by it, through the Windrush scandal, the, the so-called Windrush generation, but also who else is still being impacted by those policies? In your assessment of whether the, the Home Office deals with immigration and issues to do with race, do you believe the Home Office is intrinsically racist? I mean, I think that it's uh, a good question. And again, the um, it's worth engaging with the Wendy Williams review. She, does, she, she doesn't... Uh, go so far as to talk about institutional racism and that she I believe she says something about it being beyond the remit of what the investigation is but I think instead of thinking about just the home office I think it's worth thinking about the policies like the sets of policies and thinking about sets of policies around immigration and what that means in terms of the reproduction of racism and new forms of racism through our bordering processes. And so um, I'm not saying we don't interrogate the Home Office at all. Obviously, that is a site at which some of these policies are in, introduced and implemented. And I think that's really important to um, think about. But I, I, would, I would also say, um, it's funny, I, you know, I wrote this book about immigration and then I sort of got to the end of it and listening to colleagues and friends talking about um, migration, I sort of came to the conclusion, oh, actually, what we should be interrogating is borders, like the bordering regime and how the bordering regime functions and how race is sort of embedded within the way that we understand board borders. Um, and so that is, yeah, that's where I would sort of begin to think about how we how we can understand what is going on with race and racism and where we what we need to think about when we're thinking about what we need to dismantle. It's not only um, government departments that we need to think about. It's, it's, it's thinking about how our bordering regime functions in, in its entirety. In 2019, you wrote an article about Labour's history of racism, and you spoke a bit about the way that the British left in general are in a sort of sense of denial about that history. Could you talk to me a bit about the 1968 Commonwealth Immigration Act and also explain to me how Labour has gone so long away from any of the scrutiny about their actions? Yeah, um, that's a good question. Um, I think, so I, I would actually say that the, it's, if we maybe think about the, the, the Labour movement and you go back to even, like, I mean beyond this as well, but you go back to the 1900s and you see some of the way the labor movement are talking about migration. They're talking the, the really, really um, anti-Semitic, xenophobic ways that Jewish migrants are being talked about, for instance, who are coming to the UK, particularly fleeing pogroms in Russia. And it's quite startling actually to go back and look at that. I don't want to suggest nothing has changed since then. Um, but some of the same logics that are used now around immigration, you know, you have, I mean, it's not just the labor movement, it's also, um, it's also the right, but you have the labor movement talking, parts of the labor movement talking about these migrants, these people moving here as threats to the economy, threats to British culture, people that are going to kind of sort of destabilize the nation. And so there's a long history of sort of the labor movement treating the legitimate worker as the white worker or as the British worker. And I think that is still very much with us in, in kind of, it's shifted and changed. And so as you sort of talked about, um, I would encourage people to go and read about these different acts that were introduced in the 60s, where we often look at Enoch Powell, 
um, the Rivers of Blood speech. We look at um, some of the things that conservative governments have done around immigration and restrict, restricting immigration, making it more difficult for people to move to the UK. But if you actually look at that history, what you find is Labour, not only in 1968, but also at other points in its history, um, entrenching um, very clear forms of racism when it comes to Im immigration. So that 1968 Act was incredibly racist, that it passed through the Parliament, um, it was rushed through Parliament. Um, I won't give the whole history of it, but it's worth going and reading about that to begin to understand what that, what Labour what Labour have done in their history and it's kind of hard to at times talk about like the Labour movement or the Labour Party because yes these are these there are many different people um within these different political movements as it's similar for like the Conservatives so there's different forms of conservatism um but it's significant that there have been sections and at times large sections of the Labour Party and the Labour movement that have reproduced this very thinking um and so I think Part of the, the the way, one of the things that happened in the 60s is Labour kind of um, gave ground on immigration or reproduced anti-immigration logic at the same time as they were doing stuff like introducing the race relations legislation. And so I think that sort of has, has given them cover in a way in that they are the party. It's important that the race relations legislation, however flawed it may be, whatever its limits may be, it's important that was introduced. And it was Labour governments that did that. It was never Conservative governments. But... That isn't a cover for then interrogating what else was going on. And there's an argument that's made, um, and I cite who made it in the in the book, um, that's made that actually the reason why, partly why they introduced the race relations legislation, as well as it being the product of campaigners, actually, campaigners forcing that change, um, was because they were wanted to sort of, it was sort of a trade-off between going harder on immigration but then protecting people that were already here. And so there's a kind of, there's a tension there between what they're saying around immigration and then what they're doing within the UK. It's very hard to talk about party politics without acknowledging the role of the media. And I was wondering, what role do you think that the media, uh, be it broadcast or print, has played in framing these debates on immigration? Um, again, as with party politics is sort of hard to talk about in its like an entirety but I think like un unfortunately large sections of um, reporting around immigration um, have sort of bought into some of the underlying myths and so there's a really excellent unfortunately depressingly it's still relevant but there's a really excellent Stuart Hall um, uh, half an hour documentary I think we would call it a documentary about this that was produced I think right at the end of the 70s um, with uh, he, he produced it with um, uh, it, it's part of the um, a campaign around racism um, so it's presented by him and uh, um, a woman actress a woman who was an actress but involved in this campaign and what he says in that is he talks about the way that immigration is always presented in the media at this time as a question of numbers. And one of the things he says is, you know, when you have a number, it's something that you can't argue with. And a num whatever the number is, it's always too much. It's always too much in terms of the numbers of people who are moving here. And I think that's a really, um, a, a really interesting way of understanding the way the role of the media at that time around reporting around migration and some of the myths that they were reproducing around um, the, like really racist myths around immigration and I think we can see similar still at play now in the contemporary moment and um, all the things have shifted um, in certain ways what you see at times is for instance you see debates that are sort of set up as like 
is immigration um like what's the problem with immigration we need to understand this we need to understand how immigration has changed certain areas and there's a few documentaries that have been produced in the past 10 years i think that um that did things like send journalists to a particular area of the country and their mission was to you know find out how immigration has altered this area of the country and not only is the like the premise oh immigration is a problem what's it done um to this to this area the re one of the ways they've chosen the area in question is by saying, okay, the, the, the white population of this particular area 20 years ago was like 99%, and now it's only 80%. What has happened? And there's a, there's a real um, blurring there of immigration race, as if the only people who are British are white people, and everyone else is an immigrant, and all immigrants are not white. And so there's, there's a, that kind of underlies parts of the debate, and so you see the... Some of these different um, myths and ways of thinking being sort of implicitly or explicitly reproduced, as well as sort of the platforming of certain people consistently saying that they represent six sections of the British public. Um, and sometimes there's truth to that, but sometimes it's also that the media give these people bigger platforms, and then they give, they're able to kind of bring more people along with them. And so that it's it sort of imagines sometimes that the media. So TV shows or newspapers don't play any role at all in creating the space for those people. It's, it's more complicated, I think, than just they represent what people think in society, so let's give them a platform. How do you measure that? How do you measure how much, how many people's views they represent and when they should get that platform? Um, obviously, there's not an exact science of that, but I think it's, it's slightly more complicated than sometimes it's often presented. And what have been your observations of immigration debates during this COVID-19 pandemic? Um, yeah, I think, um, so I think there's two things. One, it's worth noting that large parts of the immigration regime remain um, in, at play, continue to be enforced. And the government very early on, organizations like JCWI, the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants, and the human rights organization Liberty, along with a number of organizations in March, um, 2020, they put together things that the government could do in order to ensure that migrants were able to access healthcare without um, fear of being detained or deported or their information being handed over to government departments, things that they could do to ensure that people don't become destitute, um, just some basic provisions that they could put in place. Some things have been done, but a lot hasn't. And so you still have... Um, no recourse to public funds is meaning that a lot of people, particularly people who are undocumented, but a lot of other people are not able to access state support. Um, although the government say that you can access the job retention scheme and you can uh, things like furloughing, um, if you have no recourse to public funds, you can still access those things. For a lot of people, there are a lot of things they can't access. And also it's a very complicated process at times. And so there's some things they could have done to just simplify processes. There's things they could have suspended, like the hostile environment in its entirety. They could have put up a firewall between the NHS and government departments, as they've done in Ireland. And a lot of those things, as I say, some things have been done, but a lot hasn't. And when they have been presented with the evidence for some of these things, they say they're looking into it and then nothing ever changes, or there's a huge amount of public pressure and a bit shift. And so the best example of that is the NHS surcharge, which I think everyone now, I think everyone now knows about. Um, and the government have got rid of it for NHS staff and caring, social care staff, only after there was a huge, huge, huge campaign in which, um, I don't know if you remember that, that video that went um, viral um, uh, of, of someone saying, you know, the, these are basic rights that I should be able to access in terms of healthcare. Um, and 
it's good that it's been it's been um is now now those people are exempt but other key workers are not and everyone else isn't who it applies to and so people just because their migrants are paying twice over for the nhs because people already pay in through um national insurance um uh and tax and so i think that's a very good example of like the potential of the things how they're shifting and the limits in terms of where they are now i think it's really important that right now a lot of people have recognized that a lot of key workers are actually migrants the people that they've been told of to blame for um the nh uh, the nhs kind of crumbling to blame for our public services not being able to function in the ways that maybe they once did or that they could um it's really clear actually now the way that the debate is set up is that's not the case um and it's also really important that a lot of people have been have had to risk their lives in unnecessarily dangerous circumstances in terms of the lack of ppe um, and the lack of protections for a lot of people who are working on the front lines and that is nhs staff is social care staff is also people working in supermarkets is um delivery drivers is all of the people that you can think of that keep society have kept society going and it's kind of telling isn't it that the government often talk about um global talent visas and people who have investor visas so people who have a lot of money or people who have phds um they can come into the country and it should be easier for them to do so a lot of those people not all of them but a lot of them were the people that were told to actually stay at home they weren't essential workers and the people who they call those skilled workers conservatives are actually the key workers so that's very important to recognize but there's a limit as it, as the nhs surcharge showed it shouldn't be what your contribution is to the country or your perceived contribution to the country that decides whether you're treated like a person or whether you get better rights and so i would want to go beyond the kind of key worker um narrative i think that that is important as i say to recognize but that is really just one step towards actually saying no one should have their access to the nhs and um, denied to them on the basis of whether they have the right documentation like how we value people shouldn't correspond to how much they earn and there's someone I've been interviewing people for the past two months about this and kind of trying to document what's been going on during um during the pandemic and someone said to me who's no who doesn't have the right to work because her asylum claim has been rejected and she has was working as a um palliative care um uh worker um and she said you know I always knew that my job was a really important job it's just a real shame that people decided it wasn't important because I only got paid 8 pounds an hour and that you know people already knew that this was the case and so like we shouldn't be measuring people's value and their how their worth in relation to what their wages and so as well as advocating for better pay and better conditions people who are doing important work i think we don't just want to see them as important or see them as deserving of rights because of the work that they do people are people people have always moved and people should have rights um if, you know if they want to move they should have the right to do so and rights when they get here and finally how do we move forward and whose responsibility is it to make britain a less racist and b more welcoming oh <laughs> such a good question um uh i mean i think there's loads of things that could be done in terms of moving forward like anyone who's watching it's worth in the short term donating to organizations 
organizations that are doing really important anti-racist work, particularly in this moment when we're talking with Black Lives, Black Lives Matter, giving money to those organizations, I think is absolutely crucial, not just treating this as one moment in time in which we all sort of then move on. Actually, this is about changing things, changing things and working to change things um, and not expecting the people who are the people who are being discriminated against, the people who are being oppressed, the people who are being killed to have to be the ones that fight for that change. It has to be collective um, at the same time as centering those voices. I think that that's really, really important. Um, and I also think in terms of thinking about migration, these things are really intertwined. And like in the UK, for instance, recognizing that this isn't just a problem over there in the US. If you look in recent history, you have people like Jimmy Mubenga, Joy Gardner, who were killed um, by when they, there were attempts to deport them from this country. And so we have to understand that history to do something about it, I think. Um, and I think in the short term, there are things you can do. So the, like I said, thinking about donating to organizations like Black Lives Matter, organizations that are doing really important work around immigration as well. And so, I'm really happy to watch this back in a year's time and have been totally wrong. I'm, I'll be very happy if this is the case, but I'm not holding my breath right now in terms of thinking about what, I'm not thinking that, um, that the government are necessarily gonna change their approach in a significant way in terms of thinking about immigration legislation. And so if that is the case, there are a lot of organizations that do really important work, work to helping people. Um, who are trying to navigate the immigration system, helping people on no recourse to public funds. So you can give money to those people, you can go and volunteer at those places, you know, once lockdown, it's kind of easing now, but when we're, at, we're properly passed through the pandemic. Um, and like putting pressure on, um, putting pressure on the people you know around you and politicians to make, to, to, to change. And by doing that's just gonna come from top down. So it has to be like across society, but I'm not gonna claim to have all the answers to that, I think it's also about listening and learning from other people and working together to do that, which is, sounds like a bit of a cop-out answer, but I, I just don't think it's like I can proclaim what, you know, what needs to happen. I think there's a number of different people and um, number like there's whole sections of society that can feed into that and also have really important ideas that, about what that change can look like and how we can achieve that going forward. My good fellow, thank you for joining me on Telefriend. Thanks very much.